If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we spoke to the author, Sarah Lefanu, about her book, Something of Themselves, which tells the story of the Anglo-Boer War and what happened when three literary greats, Rudyard Kipling, Mary Kingsley and Arthur Conan Doyle, journeyed to Southern Africa to witness the conflict. Putting the questions to her was our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. Right, so Sarah, um, your new book, which is called um, Something of Themselves, tells the story of three celebrated British writers, Rudyard Kipling, Mary Kingsley, and Arthur Conan Doyle, and more specifically, their experiences of the Anglo-Boer War in Southern Africa. Um, so I wonder if you could start by giving us a bit of background on the Anglo-Boer War, because this pitted the greatest empire on earth against essentially 30,000 farmers, but it didn't go to plan for Britain, did it? Uh, no, it, uh, it, it it certainly didn't. Um, I mean, the background to it is that there had been people who I think you could say were kind of angling for war um, for some time beforehand. Uh, what had happened was that um, back in the 1880s, uh, gold had been discovered on the Vatisrand around Johannesburg, so in the Transvaal. Um, and I think that uh, I think that that was one of the main reasons for these feelings of, mm -hmm, you know, what can we get from this? How can we take more control of this? The other thing, I mean, not to be, um, you, you know, which is also very important, I think, was that the 1880s and the 1890s, I mean, it was leading up to the time of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. So there was this kind of, it was sort of the, the height almost of imperialism. Imperial wars had been fought. Uh, Britain controlled um, a quarter, at least, of the Earth's land service, surface, um, more than a quarter of the world's population, but subject to the Empress, Queen Victoria. Uh, so there was this feeling of expansion, expansionism. Um, and there were some, you know, some people uh, that really motivated everything that they did and thought. One of those people was Cecil Rhodes who was um, in South Africa, who was in the Cape Colony. He was prime minister of the Cape Colony um, a, a decade or so before the beginning of the Boer War. And he had this, this imperialist vision. I mean, he had a vision of Britain stretching. Uh, well, he wanted to build a railway that ran from the Cape to Cairo, this kind of iron backbone to the continent of Africa. 
um, ever since uh, ever since the uh, scramble for Africa, which came about as a result of the Treaty of Berlin in 1884, you know, different European countries had been vying for slices of the African cake, as it were. Um, and uh, Rhodes was a very uh, was a was a powerful person in South Africa. He had the ear of a lot of politicians in Britain. Um, he was charismatic. He was persuasive. So his vision kind of, you know, had a had a lot of backing. And he really wanted to see the British Empire expand. So there was that. There was the gold. Um, the excuse was that uh, with the gold came all these people from Europe and elsewhere, from as far away as America, drawn by the gold prospectors, people who wanted to make their money. And a lot of those were British, and they didn't have the same rights as the Boers of the Boer Republics. So the excuse was um, to give them rights, to do with voting rights, to do with rights to carry a gun, you know, kind of general, you know, citizens' rights. And it was something that I think um, that that, I'm, that we've seen uh, in other circumstances, in other places, where where settlers or, you know, people who want to exploit the mineral rights or whatever go to a place and then suddenly those people feel that they're in a minority or they feel that they're being threatened. So then the mother country has to step in to protect them and lo and behold, Britain has another colony. That's maybe putting it a little bit crudely, but to a certain extent that was what it was. So the reason that the British went to war against the Boer Republics was to defend um, these people who were called the um, the Wheatlanders or Outlanders, that is, the foreign people that had come there drawn by the prospect of um, profits from the gold. And that was kind of the, the big excuse that was used. Um, sorry, and then your, the second part of your question was how did it pan out for the British? OK, well, I suppose um, I suppose the first thing to say is that the the British were incredibly unprepared. Um, as you said, you know, they thought that they were going to war against 30,000 farmers. Um, they had no idea of the Boer aptitude for war. Uh, the Boers turned out to be terribly good at a, at a different kind of warfare from what the British were used to. So was this guerrilla warfare? I think that you could absolutely call it guerrilla warfare. And up until then, the British army had been used to had um, been used to a not, a not very well armed enemy, um, people that uh, you know that didn't have the whole of a kind of a population supporting them, and people who they could vanquish by using their old style of marching in tight formation and shooting uh, and killing them. Well, basically, the Boers didn't hang around to be shot. Was one thing. The other thing was that they were. Um, surprisingly well-armed, and that came as a very nasty shock to the British High Command. Uh, they, 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 had, um, they carried Mausers that they got from Germany that were in many ways superior to the arms that the British had, the Lee Enfields and then the Lee Metfords. They had these siege guns um, with very long range, and then they had a, 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 a newly discovered kind of smokeless powder so when they shot at the British troops, the British troops had no idea where the shots were coming from. And that was, you know, a very nasty surprise. 
Now, um, you say in your book that Conan Doyle described the war as death in its vilest, filthiest form. How miserable an experience was uh, the Anglo-Boer conflict for those who fought in it? Um, Conan Doyle was talking specifically about uh, about the typhoid that decimated the British army because he went out there thinking that it would be a good, clean fight and that he'd be dealing with um, you know, people wounded on the battlefield. And, of course, he dealt with them a little bit, but mainly what he was dealing with was typhoid. Now, typhoid was the most terrible thing and... Um, and it and it and it ripped through the army, so it was a terrible disease to have. It was a horrible disease to die from, and it was extremely debilitating as well. So for the British soldiers, they you know who were vulnerable to it, um, it was absolutely ghastly. Um, I think on top of that, they had to put up with you know a climate that they weren't used to. Um, they had to put up with. Um, what I described about, you know, the, the, the Boers' aptitude for warfare. So they weren't used to being shot at by an enemy they couldn't see. They weren't used to fighting somebody and then that enemy jumping onto their ponies and vanishing in a cloud of dust um, so they were unable to follow them. So it was all kind of terribly discombobulating. And that on top of, of the conditions of the heat, of the disease, of... Um, of uh, of, of not very of <laughs> of chaos really. Um, I mean, the other thing that the British weren't prepared for was the importance of supplying the troops and the fact that you know they were to to, to go by train across the country. It was just single track, so you couldn't you know have goods going up and wounded coming down. I mean, it was only kind of one thing at a time. So I think the conditions for the ordinary soldier were were really terrible. Now, what kind of um, impact did the war have on the British public thousands of miles miles away back in Britain? I mean, did they know much about it? Did they care about it? Um, I think that to begin with, they didn't care a great deal. I mean, it was an awfully long way away. And, you know, and they, you know, what impact would it have had on their lives? That was the beginning. They were kind of, yeah, apathetic, I would say. However, fairly soon after the beginning of the war, war was declared in um, in October of 1899. Within a couple of months, the British army had suffered a number of defeats and then there was this one terrible week in December which became known generally, you know, amongst the army in South Africa and then back at home as Black Week. There were three big battles, Stormberg, Colenso and Magusfontein when the British were just absolutely um, uh, not hacked to bits, <laughs> shot to bits perhaps, um, but were really severely defeated. Um, and at the same time, there were three towns which had soldiers and civilians in who came under siege from the Boers, so Kimberley, Ladysmith and Mafeking. And I think that really made a difference, actually, back home in England. Um, I think that it was humiliating. This had never happened before, that so many British troops should be under siege, again, from farmers. Um, and it was terrible to realise of these really awful defeats. And I think, actually, that that stirred up 
people's um, patriotism to a certain extent, and they became much more vigorous about the prosecution of the war. So when, for example, um, so when the sieges were lifted, um, Kimberley and Lady Smith fairly soon in the new year, Mafeking not till much later, not until May, there was this huge kind of, you know, I mean, it was like a, you know, a, you know, Britain's won the World Cup type thing. You know, it really, everybody was kind of infected with this great sense of joy and victory. Uh, sorry, when I say everybody, there were, of course, dissenting voices. Okay, so we've got um, these three writers, uh, Kipling, Conan Doyle and Kingsley. They're all witnesses to the conflict. Now, what drew them to Southern Africa in the first place? Uh, well, um, different things drew them, but they, they all had things in common, really. So perhaps um, perhaps I'll start with Mary Kingsley. She was the one that was least politically involved in the South in the in the South African War, I would say, although she herself was an extremely political person. Her real interests lay in West Africa. Um, she had written by the beginning of the war in 1899, she'd written these two big books about West Africa, one of which, West African Studies, was very critical of British colonial policy. She'd become very involved in a row over um, colonial policy in Sierra Leone when they had tried to impose a hut tax and she had uh, and she had campaigned vigorously against that. And she believed that what you should do if you were in somebody else's country is that you should, you know, speak to the people that lived there and listen to the people that lived there and respect their laws, their cultures, their traditions and so on. She was very, very keen to get back to West Africa um, for a number of reasons. And actually, I think that one of the reasons that she went to South Africa was not so much in order to be involved in the war there, but she saw that as a stepping stone to get back to West Africa. Um, and before she went, I think she didn't know an enormous amount about it. But because she ended up nursing Boer prisoners of war, of course, she spoke to them. She, she was a great listener, Mary Kingsley. She listened to them. And so she kind of learned about it when she was there, when she was nursing them. Now, the other two went with preconceptions. I would say that she didn't have preconceptions about it, but the other two did. Um, and I would say that they went for reasons of patriotism. Um, in the case of Kipling, he, he, he shared Rhodes's imperialist vision, although it was more kind of complicated than Rhodes's. Kipling was a very was a man of many contradictions, but he did share that vision. He believed that um, he believed that Britain had a civilizing mission, um, and that uh, and that the empire should be expanded. That was one reason for him going. With Conan Doyle, it was a more I would say it was a more straightforward patriotism. He very much believed that the Wheatlanders, the foreigners should be given the same rights as the citizens of the Boer republics and that it was very unfair um, that they weren't. And Conan Doyle was very, very keen on ideas of fairness, very kind of motivated. He was a great one to, to in supporting the underdog. And in this case, he saw the foreigners there uh, in the Boer republics as the underdogs. And so he wanted to help them. So that was one of the reasons why he went. 
all three of them had other reasons for going as well. All three of them had personal reasons. Um, Kipling had suffered uh, a terrible tragedy just a year before he'd, uh, his daughter Josephine, who was six years old, had died suddenly. It was when he himself was very ill um, and he didn't know of her death until after he recovered from his illness. He nearly died too. And it was a, a devastating blow for him and for his wife, Carrie. Um, and I, they internalised it in different ways. But he really hadn't recovered from it at all. And I think that, you know, he wanted to... Uh, he thought that um, that by going out to South Africa, by, um, by acting as a morale booster for the troops, he was hugely looked up to, Kipling, you know, by... Um, by ordinary people, you know, his poems were so fantastically well known and people knew them off by heart and chanted them. Um, and I think that he thought that he could, you know, lose his kind of personal problems amidst this great upheaval of war and the kind of the camaraderie that it offered and the action that it offered. So that was him. Conan Doyle similarly had personal reasons for going. Um, he... Uh, well, perhaps I better say, uh, I better explain that he went as a doctor. Um, he hadn't been a doctor for 10 years. Uh, he, had, he, he hadn't needed to after the great success of Sherlock Holmes. But 10 years before, he had boldly said to himself, right, I'm not going to do any more doctoring. I'm going to earn my living as a writer. So, and so he was kind of at the height of his fame, really. But it was a way to get out there, and he was very keen to get out there. So he signed up with a field hospital as a surgeon. And he was leaving behind a wife who... Um, they'd been married since long before the Sherlock Holmes days, you know, when he was just sending out stories every week and, um, you know, hoping that they'd be accepted and getting them rejected and uh, working as a medical practitioner. So, uh, and he and his wife, Louise Tui, she was, she was known as, uh, well, happily married, had two children. And then she was diagnosed with tuberculosis, which in those days was pretty much um, a death sentence. And it was just a question of how long it would take. Um, and he had he had provided everything to, you know, to, to make her comfortable, to, you know, to, to provide the easy life. Um, but meanwhile, he'd fallen in love with somebody else. And this all kind of came to a head just about the same time as the Boer War was looming up on the horizon, rumbling in the background. I think it was an excuse for him as well. It was an excuse for him as it was for Kipling. And in the same way, in a way, it was an excuse for Mary Kingsley. So all three of them kind of, I think maybe this often happens in wars, you know, that people go for their own reasons, you know, even if they also go for reasons of patriotism or to help other people or international solidarity or kind of whatever it is, that often there are these personal reasons. So all three of them had those. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. As for Rudyard Kipling, I mean, it's interesting what he wrote during the course of the war. Some of it was very, um, what you might call, I suppose, propagandistic. He became to really, really hate the Boers and see them as deeply treacherous and perfidious and became quite obsessed by it. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Kingsley, she's, um, I'm, I'm guessing she'll probably be a lot less familiar to our listeners than, uh, than Kipling and Conan Doyle. I mean, um, you describe her as, as having a racy, ironic, curiously modern voice. I mean, could you just tell us a little bit more about, uh, about her and about her writing before she, um, she landed in Southern Africa? Hmm. Well, she had led, um, I think, what you might call a very secluded, uh, quiet childhood, uh, basically looking after a mother who was uh, ill in various kind of ill-defined ways. Her father, George Kingsley, uh, was a doctor and a naturalist and a great traveller and adventurer. And he spent all his adult life (laughs) uh, travelling around with various people. Um, He was a big game shooter. He was a um, a game fisher. He was, you know, he was an outdoors man and apparently hugely charming. And his daughter, Mary, absolutely doted on him. Um, and and he had he had a wide ranging mind, so he had this um, marvelous library of books. Um, and so she was completely self taught. Uh, you know, she read her father's library in this you know quiet secluded house that she lived in with her mother. And then her parents died um, very close to each other within six months of each other uh, when she was barely thirty, and she was left. Uh, with this, well, she had this extremely uh, curious and I would say passionate mind. Um, And she decided that she would go travelling and that she would go exploring, in a way, stepping into her father's shoes. He, however, uh, charming though he was, had never really kind of done anything with his travels. I mean, you know, he was not... She became a scholar and an authority in a way that he didn't. Maybe that's the way to put it. So she went on these two long trips to West Africa uh, where she where she um, she went into the interior she um, she investigated local customs, local traditions, and she also went as a naturalist and came back with a number of varieties of fishes and insects that it turned out were of interest to the Natural History Museum. Um, And she, I think because she had never really felt part of um, Victorian middle-class life, she didn't really fit into it. Perhaps I should say that, like her mother, she she spoke with a strong Cockney accent and she never lost that strong Cockney accent. Um, she developed a penchant for smoking tobacco and she found when she was travelling that rather than getting on with the missionaries who in fact she on the whole disapproved of um, she got on very much better with the people who were known as the palm oil ruffians that is the kind of the rough traders and made good friends amongst them so she was kind of you know she she wasn't a uh, she wasn't an ordinary uh middle-class Victorian lady. And she found a kind of freedom, I think, in West Africa that she wasn't able to find at home. And I think that was the pull that it had for her. Now, can you um, describe what happened to her when she, um, 
when she got to Southern Af- Africa, as you said, she she um, did some nursing with Boer soldiers. But this story had a, bit, a, a tragic ending for her, didn't it? Uh, it certainly did. Yes, I mean, when she went there, she she uh, she went as a nurse. Uh, she'd had some nursing. She had some medical experience. Um, she'd done a, a brief medical course um, in Germany, um, and had you know done some uh, had 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 picked up stuff during the time that she'd spent in West Africa. So she went as a nurse. She didn't expect to be sent to uh, to nurse the Boer prisoners of war. Um, but she was, and she was incredibly dutiful as well. So there was no kind of, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, she she really felt that if somebody asked her to do something, then she must do it. At that point, when she arrived there, it was only a few weeks after a rather important battle had taken place, which was the Battle of Paderberg. And that was one of the turning points of the Boer War. I mean, there were a number of turning points. The war went this way and that way and this way and that way. But Paderberg was one of the turning points when what had seemed to be um, Boer um, Boer triumphs, Boer invincibility against the lumbering British army, uh, the tables were turned and um, a, a large number of Boers were kept trapped. They dug into the banks of the River Modder and were under... Um, a firestorm from Lord Kitchener, in fact, and his troops on the other side. And they were trapped there for 10 days. By the time uh, they surrendered and got to the POW camp down south of Cape Town, uh, typhoid was already spreading amongst them. Um, And they were, you know, they'd had very little to eat. They were in a very weak state, so it was really absolutely desperate. So in order for them to be nursed, they opened up what had been an old barracks and it became the Palace Barracks Hospital. And that was where Mary Kingsley found herself with um, with these soldiers who had survived Paderberg and were now fighting typhoid. And one of the awful things was that it was that with the Boers, it was very much a family affair. I mean, it was, it was a nation of farmers. And so the people that went to fight, they were fathers, their fathers and their sons. And so she described, you know, talking to somebody, talking to to one of her patients who came out of a delirium, you know, and asked for his son, you know, where is Piet? And, uh, you know, and Piet's body, you know, was in the next bed. They hadn't yet had time to get rid of it. And I think that was really awful, actually. And... She nursed them, you know, um, and then she uh, and she and then she became infected with typhoid herself, and she realised what it was because she was fantastically familiar with the symptoms, and she also knew what the possible um, what the really bad consequences were. One of the things with typhoid um, is that uh, it. It perf- if your bowel gets perforated, then it's really bad news. <laughs> um, and that was what happened with her. And in fact, one of the doctors at the hospital operated on her, but her heart wasn't strong enough. And she came round from the operation, but she died. You know, she was only 37. She was a, she was a young woman. Were Conan Doyle and Kipling aware of Kingsley's presence in Southern Africa and of each other's presence? 
So Kip- Kipling was uh, knew that Mary Kingsley was there. They'd known each other, not fantastically well, but they'd known each other for some time. They'd known each other in London. And Mary Kingsley had become very friendly with Kipling's wife, Carrie. So when Mary Kingsley arrived in Table Bay and disembarked from the steamer that she was on, she actually went and and to see Carrie, first of all, because by then Kipling had left Cape Town and had gone up to Blomfontein. Um, when he came back from Blomfontein, they saw her. I mean, they were friends with her, so they did know. The thing, actually, that unites all three of my subjects is the typhoid, because it was not what any of them were expecting. Um, Mary Kingsley died of it, but the other two were really horrified and you know had wrote about it and then campaigned about it later so just but to answer your question about um about the connections between them um Conan Doyle and Mary Kingsley didn't know each other at least not as far as I know I didn't come across any um anything that led me to suspect that they did um Conan Doyle and, and Kipling missed each other by one day in this place called Blomfontein which is the capital of the Orange Free State, and which fell to the British forces under Lord Roberts in the middle of March of 1900. One of the first things that Lord Roberts did, um, he he was he he was very clever about um, knowing the importance of a good press, and of you know and of making the people into whose land um, you'd just arrived. Um, you know, is to get him over onto your side. He was very aware of the power of propaganda. So one of the things that he did was he commandeered one of the local English-speaking papers uh, for the troops and um, and put into it as editors three of the journalists who were travelling with the troops. And then he cabled down to Cape Town and invited Kipling to go up there. So Kip, that was why Kipling ended up in Blomfontein, working on this newspaper called the Blomfontein Friend. Um, him and three other journalists, and they had a rare old time. They re- and they really, uh, they really enjoyed it. Later on, Kipling wrote to one of them saying something like, "Oh, it was you know, it was a brilliant time. What fine larks we had!" And indeed, the paper is full of jokes and riddles and um, you know, kind of crazy correspondences. And you know, and the troops absolutely loved it. And they sent in their poems and they sent in their own riddles and so on. Um, so Conan Doyle uh, travelled out to South Africa with a, a field hospital, a private field hospital put together by somebody called John Langman. So it was known as Langman's Hospital. And it was posted by the army command to Blomfontein. So he sailed, So he, first of all, they stopped at Cape Town and then they sailed round down round the Cape and along to Port Elizabeth, and then they came up by train to Blomfontein. Um, and that was the first kind of experience that Conan Doyle had, that this wasn't going to be quite the war that he thought it was going to be. I mean, because you look at it on the map and you think, oh, yes, well, presumably a train can get from Port Elizabeth up to Blomfontein in 12 hours, but not when it's just single track and not when there's troops going up and wounded coming down and this, that and the other, and they lost they lost some of their hospital supplies and, yeah, chaos. But he got there. He got there in the end. But unfortunately, Kipling had left the day before. So they very nearly crossed over, but not quite. They knew each other in England. They weren't big friends, but they were acquainted. You know, they were both part of um, a literary 
establishment and had come across each other. So the thing that, I mean, you know, ex- they shared the same experience in Blomfontein of, of horror at the, at, at the way that typhoid had taken hold and had been allowed to spread. And both of them were, uh, you know, both of them knew that it was about sanitation. That's what it kind of came down to, really. Lack of. Right. I mean, you described both of them as, to a certain degree, enthusiastic, imperialists, or, or, or at least patriots. I mean, how much did their experience of the Anglo-Boer War shape their attitude to imperialism? I mean, did it change at all? And also, did it, did it change their literary output in any way? Right. Well, um, when Conan Doyle got back in 1900, he was already, he'd already almost finished his um, history of the Boer War, even though the Boer War was still going on. He was a really prolific writer. But then so was Kipling. I mean, all three of them, they wrote and they wrote and they wrote. You know, they had an experience and then they wrote about it. I mean, you know, they were kind of real writers in that sense. Um and his history of the Boer War is, you know, it's very much, uh, it, it's quite partisan, I suppose you could call it. You know, it's very much on the side of the British. But as I, as I said earlier, I mean, one of the things that, that, that motivated him was this sense that, um, that, that things should be fair and that people shouldn't be treated unfairly. And that led, it, led him, after the Boer War, into what might be some quite surprising places. So having been, as it were, kind of pro-imperialist, um, and very patriotic. Um, one of the causes that he took up not long after the end of the Boer War um, was that of a young mixed-race lawyer who lived in Shropshire who had been accused of a whole kind of variety of really horrible crimes. Um, and it was obvious that he'd been completely framed and it was obvious that it was being done because he was mixed-race. That was a cause that... Conan Doyle took up and worried away at like a terrier. Once he got a cause, he didn't like to let go of it. That's one example. That was in about 1907. The man's name was George Adalji. Um, and he was he was finally acquitted, though never received an apology for what had happened. I mean, you know, it was and, and Conan Doyle wrote about it as if it was I I mean, he didn't use the word in he didn't use the phrase institutional racism, but he talked about the institution of the police and how they um closed ranks against things like that. As for Rudyard Kipling, I mean it's interesting what he wrote during the course of the war. Some of it was very um what you might call, I suppose, propagandistic. He became to really, really hate the Boers and see them as deeply treacherous and perfidious and became quite obsessed by it. That was Sarah Lefanu. Her book, Something of Themselves, Kipling, Kingsley, Conan Doyle and the Anglo-Boer War is out now, published by Hearst. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when James Chetwood will be speaking about medieval names. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. 
With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.